marriage and then go into uh, other stuff in the spring. Um, let me pray for us and then uh, ask a couple questions to get us warmed up, right? But since this is our last class on spiritual disciplines, this is you ask whatever you feel like you need to know or you want to talk about with respect to this topic. This is the time to do it. Let me pray for us. Lord, thanks for this time together. Uh, do uh, shepherd us all uh, in green pastures. Uh, make us lie down in still waters. Restore our soul. Thank you that, Jesus, you are the good shepherd, and you've done that. And so because you've done it, Lord, uh, would you give us experientially more of the wonders of the still waters and the green pastures and the healing of our soul. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so some of you might have, well, Amanda and Steve were listening to me. Everybody else was not. But we had, last night, lightning hit our neighbors, the Pax's house. You know, the forest dead moms that live across the street from us, the forest. But now the Pax lives there, hit their house. It caught on fire, their roof, but it was put out. But that lightning knocked out our uh, electrical. It just surged throughout. I mean, I couldn't, we couldn't even believe it. So anyhow, I was on the phone trying to figure all that out. But isn't that nuts? So five years ago, lightning hit the Mitchells, which is at the front of the neighborhood, which is about probably about 300 yards down the street, and burned their house down, the whole upper part of their house down. So that's crazy, isn't it? that last night yes yes yep yes yeah it looked like Lord of the Rings didn't it no I saw that same thing the reason only reason why I saw it because we were we were at the practice fields that overlooked the whole valley and it was all happening about 15 miles away and it went I saw it Crazy. But who would have thought lightning would hit two neighborhood, twice in the same neighborhood? Nuts. Yeah, I mean, Ty's the one that saw it. He said, Dad, why are there fire trucks over at Pax's house? And I went, what do you mean? Yeah. So who comes out to y'all? Oh, well, there you go. Where are y'all? I don't even know where that is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's no volunteer? Okay. Yeah. Uh, that makes sense. Well, okay. Well, there you go. You have it. So someone could make maybe some money by having a fire truck that, there you go, Van. You're the entrepreneur, dude, right? Maybe you start your own fire service. No. No. 
up. He's like, oh, we're not having any of that. No, he's an entrepreneur. He's like, so I'm just, you know, ideas, whiteboarding for you, brother. Just another thing for you to think about, man. Oh, uh, uh, that's great. Well, you can bring Scott down to take care of that part. See, we already got his life solved. He needs to get back to Waco. Uh, crazy. All right, y'all. So, again, tonight's the last night. Then we're going to do um, four weeks on marriage. Um, and I'm going to try, I think what I might do for the marriage class, I, I want to get like a, a wide variety of couples uh, and even um, those that uh, are now single and were married and have a Q&A at the beginning and then get into the teaching. So what's that? No, no longer married. And just so, because, and I mean, like Carol, she's, she's very open about how she could talk through, and I was thinking she would probably be good. So anyhow, that's what I'm thinking for the marriage. Also, similar to the parenting, but uh, even I'll have Nancy up here. I think we'll, we'll do the theological and practical together. Um, yeah, so we'll see. And I want to hear from you all, and that's how I'll probably do some of the course, like get some of the, well, what, what do my parents need to think about? What are you all thinking about when you think about marriage? What do young couples premarital like during covid i have done more marriages married more people than any other year two-year span ever ever and that's when we used to have like when pete was here we used to have like 70 college students coming to church and so we were marrying people like crazy that's nothing compared to what i just did these past two years isn't that nuts so right now i am right now i have premarital counseling for Six couples that's going to be married this fall and in the spring. So I think like I want to, I want to have a class that's continual for that premarital and marriage that's always there. And then so if you attend, I might have you end up like connecting with these new couples. I, my goal is to have new marrieds connected to seasoned marrieds just to have some friends who are a little bit down the corner, around the corner in this thing called marriage. So know that that's, I'm trying to figure that out, make it helpful for everybody and to make it a community effort, more of a community effort since we have so many married people, people getting married. Marriage is a good thing, right? Except when it's not. <laughs> all right, here we go. Um, we should all know this. You should know, like, spiritual disciplines. What's the goal of spiritual disciplines? Right now, if you were to, you know, you're trying to, all right, I'm approaching spiritual disciplines. If you were to talk to somebody about spiritual disciplines, you'd say, hey, man, this is the goal of spiritual disciplines. What are we saying? What are we communicating as the goal of spiritual disciplines right now? If you can remember, I know some of you have been here the whole time. You can remember. All right, is it to get it right? The truth camp? No. Is it to get it felt, the experience camp? No, it's what? Both. There we go. So spiritual disciplines. The goal of spiritual disciplines is truth and experience, right, together. And one of the ways we're saying that is how? How are we saying that? Intelligent mystic. Yes. You hear that? We are, our goal is to be an intelligent mystic. Another way of saying that is what? 
Yes, clear to the mind, real to the heart. Hey, Margaret. Clear to the mind, real to the heart. Another way we could say that. Giving you all kinds of grammar. Experiencing Jesus with the Bible. Not apart from it. Okay? Experiencing Jesus, mystic, with the Bible, intelligent. If you build your spiritual disciplines with that goal in mind, with you're going to have spiritual disciplines and practices that are helpful for you. If you don't have that in mind, you're going to move towards one of the thieves of the gospel, or you'll move towards the truth camp or the experience camp, right? You're going to... You're going to gravitate towards one. And the reason why you are is because by personality, you tend to be one right now. Tend to be one camp by personality. And we want to grow in both at the same time. And so we're, we're not having that false dichotomy of head and heart. I don't need the Bible. The Hebrew doesn't even have a word for it, the difference. The Hebrew has one word for the mind, one word for the heart. One word for emotions, one word for thinking. Isn't that crazy? So the Bible doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. The heart is a thinking and a feeling faculty. Clear to the mind, real to the heart. Okay? All right, so that's the goal. What are spiritual disciplines? Well, the general evangelical answer is spiritual practices, spiritual exercises that help us in spiritual formation. That's the general big tent understanding of spiritual disciplines. So when you're thinking of spiritual disciplines, the big tent evangelical understanding is some form of spiritual exercise practice that helps spiritually form me, right? That's the general view. Uh, that Ignatius is the one that kind of made this like a bestseller. The church has always had spiritual practices in the church. But when he wrote, it it kind of hit like, it, it uh, became popular. It became like a felt need throughout Christendom. And some of the things that came up at that time, we looked at those a long time ago, but Bible reading, meditation, study, prayer, vows, vows of poverty, chastity, uh, to give certain amounts to certain things, fasting, worship, stewardship, which is tithes and offerings and generosity, silence, solitude, journaling, learning, uh, evangelism, mission, service to others, disciplines to control the tongue, sex, eating, bad habits, sins, time, disciplines of remembering. I mean, do you see how this can go on ad infinitum? Honestly, you can, you can discipline, you can break your life down into disciplines in every facet, every aspect. You could have a spiritual discipline for parenting. You could have a spiritual discipline for, um, well, what, what was big in my day? It was Covey. It was how you use your time. You know, micromanage your time. That's a spiritual discipline because time is one thing you can't get back. You know, all that kind of stuff. Do you want to prioritize your values or do you want to prioritize the urgent? Oh, I can remember all this language. <laughs> Chandra, Chandra, Chandra and I were probably, you know, we had, we were separated at birth, I think. All right, you have family devotions and disciplines, catechism, yada, yada, yada. Uh, our tradition makes a distinction. It just makes a, 
I, I think it's a more helpful distinction to talk about spiritual disciplines. Our tradition will talk about the means of grace, okay? And within the means of grace, there are three big ones. You got the word, especially the preached word, and then you have two sacraments, okay? So our tradition will talk that way. And those are, those are the major means of grace because they talk about a, a one-way divine energy. When you look at the preached word or the word, but mostly the preached word, um, the Lord's Supper and baptism, those are, those are one-way realities. Those are God acting. It has nothing to do with you except you receive it. Does that make sense? So the major means of grace, have think of them as a one-way thing. It's one way, God's energies, God's grace being unleashed on you. Jesus showing up in these means to give you his comprehensive salvation. Uh, the theological language is benefits. Have you ever heard that? You receive Christ and his benefits. That's, that's what that's saying. His benefits are what he accomplished for you. Those would be in Ephesians, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies is yours. Those spiritual blessings are the benefits. So the means of grace, the major means of grace are three. The general means of grace that have to do with, okay, this one-way stuff hits you, but it also creates a response in you and generates uh, more of a relational dynamic. It's more dynamic, meaning that's doing stuff to us and we do stuff in return. We respond. That's a broader umbrella of the means of grace. Just in terms of our tradition, that's the way we talk. And then there's the sacrament discussion of the means of grace. So we have the, you know, we have the big one where you have the preached word and the two sacraments, and then you just have the sacraments because the preached word is not a sacrament. Does that make sense? All of that's within our tradition. So those are fixed. Our tradition will talk about fixed means of grace. These are fixed. These aren't negotiable. Preached word, Lord's Supper, baptism, you don't get to do stuff with that. That's given to us by God, right? Then you have a general view that has things like prayer. Why is prayer not a sacrament? Just real quick. Why is prayer not a sacrament? Or in the, um, the, the first tier means of grace, why is prayer not there? Excellent. Yes, Van. So the others remember a sacrament and the first tier means of grace, sacrament, and then add the preached word, three components. Those are one way. Now prayer is in the general bucket of the means of grace, but now it's something that is happening to us. Remember prayer is answering speech. When you're first spoken to, you now have something to say. So we wanted to build practices flexible practices that help that, right? So flexible practices that you want to do, like if you journal, that's helpful to you, do it. But now you know why you're doing it. Like for some of us, journaling helps you listen better. It helps you listen to the text. You're re let's say you're journaling, or it helps you answer the text back better. So for a while, like what I have done in the past, I have a, a, a pencil. I used to have this like mechanical, I still have the mechanical pencil. 
And when I'd be reading and I'd be struck with something, um, my prayer would look like sometimes I would write, write it down, right? Because it was helpful. I don't do that anymore, but at a time it was helpful. So you have flexible practices that are attached to fixed means of grace. Those are good spiritual disciplines, whatever you want to do. Does that make sense? All right. So there we are. Today we are going to talk about the sacraments because Van wanted to. That's why we're talking about the sacraments. Right, Van? All right. So (laughs) what is a sacrament? Let's talk about what is a sacrament. Right now, if you were to just think of some ideas, some grammar that would, that's helped you understand or you're trying to figure it out, what would be some grammar that you would throw out there for what a sacrament is? Excellent. Yes. So these are... These would be means of grace. A sacrament would be a means of grace. Things that, but you said it was very important. You said that Jesus established. That's huge. This is what separates, this is. It's just a, yes, go ahead. Oh, dude, that's really good, huh? He was like, why, all right, if, if the reformers called us, one of the criteria for reformers, is, which is very interesting, the first criteria for a sacrament for the reformers in the Protestant Reformation is that Christ had to command it. But Stephen's question is, well, then why isn't the preached word? Because the apostles were called to preach the gospel. So why wouldn't that be a sacrament? That's really interesting. Dude, you are, like, always keeping me on my toes. Um, I don't know what the answer is to that right now, honestly. I don't know. So what we do know um, is a sacrament is a means of grace. It's a means that Jesus shows up and confers his benefits to us, meaning he shows up with a comprehensive salvation and he applies it to you through these means. The sacrament has two components to it that make it a sacrament. One, Christ had to command it. Two, it only has a gospel reference point. It doesn't point to anything else. So why isn't prayer a sacrament? How would you answer it really quick? Given those two criteria from the reformers, what would you say? Amanda? Yes, excellent. It doesn't, have a, it doesn't have a gospel reference point. So a gospel reference point means that Jesus does it, right? The life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the reign of Jesus, those events have messages attached to them, but that stuff Jesus has done. Prayer doesn't have that because prayer involves us responding to God, right? It's something we do. This is so, so important. Just as we grow in the gospel, Luther used to say, listen, if, if it happens inside of you, 
and it's something you do, it's not the gospel. That's so helpful. So if you're wondering, my changed life, my changed heart, oh, that's something inside of me. That's not the gospel. Uh, I'm doing this, I'm obeying, I'm trusting. This is not the gospel. If it happens outside of you and is done by Jesus for you, it's the gospel. And because it's been done for you and outside of you, it actually now changes you and does stuff to you, <laughs> right? That's just really, really helpful. And that's why someone today was so interesting, loved it. I had this, this conversation. I had a, um, someone who's investigating Jesus who actually, like, I had talked to a long time ago, and he said, I finally read the book. We need to talk. So we went and we ate at Fourth Guest Barbecue. Um, he hadn't been there. I said, let's go get some barbecue. So we're down there, and it was so fascinating. He was saying, I can pray. I pray right now. I, I, I can talk to myself and talk to God in myself. And it was just a really good conversation, right? He's investigating Jesus. He doesn't know what to make of it, but you know what he said? He said this. He said, I figured out that where Christianity comes down to one thing. I go, what's that? He goes, whether Jesus rose from the dead or not. And I went, yes, it does. He goes, because, and I, and honestly, I believe him. Um, he's one of the nicest, kindest, most loving people I've met. He genuinely thinks of other people. He has a horrible, horrible background. But I think that's been part of how God has done stuff in his life and prepared him, right? So we were talking about, he got the fact, I said, yeah, doesn't that, doesn't that make sense? It be, being moral and ethical doesn't, doesn't mean anything to Christianity, ultimately. It's about whether Jesus rose from the dead or not, because this is a very ethical person. This is a person that gets up and thinks about how they can help another person. I don't do that, right? He consciously thinks about that. So anyhow, he got that. He gets that. But then what we said, I said, so we're talking, and I said, but wouldn't you like to have a conversation with someone outside of yourself? Wouldn't you like that if that there was some objective, true reality that came from outside and told you what was true? Because he struggles with depression. And he listens to himself. And his eyes went, bing. I said, do you, do you enjoy everything you say to yourself? Bing, what if there was a power, a word, a reality that comes outside in? Now we're talking about Christianity, right? It, so anyhow, this stuff is very practical for us. So a sacrament is outside in. The gospel is something that's done outside of you for you. And because it's true, it unleashes the power of God on you. That's why anything good happens inside of you. That's why, and that's called sanctification. That's why there's a new thing that happens, right? But even apart from you even changing, he did it for you. It's called justification. You're saved. Without changing. This is what's so radical. We're going to look at it this weekend. This is scandalous. God justifies the ungodly. How the heck is 
sin. Right? This is why Christianity is not about being morally ethical, ultimately. Does Christianity change you and make you a human being? Yeah, absolutely. But that's not what Christianity is all about. It's a fruit, but it's not what Christianity is all about. So all the conversations about changing everything is if it's a legitimate, real change, it's the fruit of the gospel. But people now are making it the gospel. They're making it the message of the church. That's called law, and it'll never work. It will never, ever work. Okay, here we go. Um, the reformers, are, we already did that. So why is, we already did that. How many sacraments are there? Two. We, what are they? Excellent. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Here's how we're going to think about baptism. Grace to begin the journey. Here's how we want to think about the Lord's Supper. Grace to continue the journey. Okay? You with me? So, let's talk about the three views of sacraments in general, and then we'll, we'll burrow into the Lord's Supper and baptism a little bit. And I'm going to ask you some questions. Okay? All right, what are the three views? So there are only three views in the history of the church that matter, meaning they actually form denominations or theologies or stripes. There probably are others, but they never made it in church history. They never got a, a good following enough to where people went, hey, that's a real movement over there, right? So there are generally three. You have what's called uh, the memorial view. You have what's called the sacramental view. And then you have what's called uh, the reformed or means of grace view. This is all you got. So it's good to know what the playing field is. Right? It's good to know that, okay, I'm going to play in one of these. One of these ballparks is where I'm playing with the sacraments. So one way, and, and you've got to understand, and I think we do, that whatever your view of the sacrament is, this is incredibly practical. And it will influence not only your view of, say, baptism and the Lord's Supper, it will influence your participation of those things. It will determine whether children are involved or not. Right? So this is huge. And obviously, it's huge because there are denominations and whole swaths of Christianity that have gone one view, another view, and another view, right? You with me? All right, so here we go. Um, the way that uh, has been most helpful for me to understand what's happening here is this. The determining factor for all three is what is God doing? Or... Another way of saying it is, um, who is the primary actor? These three will answer this. Try to answer this. Okay? So the memorial is saying God is not active. That's incredibly important. God is not active. Um, it's a memorial. It's like an antique. You know, you go to an antique from the 1940s and you go, wow, I remember the 1940s. 
You go to your grandparents' house, and you see furniture from their era. And then you get them, and you remind you of your grandparents or your parents or whatever. Do you see how this works? Antiques are memorials. They, what they do is they cause you to remember something that happened in the past. Yes, that's right. You remember, and the, the benefit is in the remembering. The, the, the benefit, so it's kind of like you remember, oh, yeah, I remember that Jesus died for me. But the question again is, and this is what's so important, what is God doing in this thing? And the answer is he's not active. You're active in the memorial. Faith is primary in the memorial view. Your remembering is the action. You're the primary actor. You see how, how this is happening? So even how we talk about this is so huge. So to, to talk to somebody who holds a memorial view about baptizing infants is talking in two different worlds. And you've got to go, You've got to enter into that world, and if you enter into that world, you have to talk within that world, because if you start talking about infant baptism in your world, they can't even comprehend that, because in their view, it's a memorial view. But let's say, let's say, what is God doing? Who's the primary actor? Let's say he is the primary actor. Now you're having a different conversation. So that's why I think this is the most helpful to me. I don't even, when I get into conversations about baptizing children and the mode of baptism, I'm not even like, I'm, I'm, I'm listening. I'll listen to the person that has the questions and yada, 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 and I'll go, you know, just, just what do you think's happening in that? I'm, I'm going to go to this question because it doesn't even really, you can't even register until you establish this. This makes no sense until you establish this. Now, the sacramental view is saying God is definitely acting. But here's how he's act, acting. All right, so God is not acting. God is acting. On demand. Because God is tied to the elements themselves. And that's why they can become um, spooky. They can be, um, that's why, let's, for instance, this is always hilarious. Because so many of us, I realized, I realized that so many of us are sacramental about the Lord's Supper. You know how I realized that? Because all the people that got upset when the kids started eating the bread. People were running up and they come up to me, how can you let the kids eat the bread? And I go, well, why can't they? After the service. Yeah. Right. I said, I said, well, why can't they eat the bread? Because do you know what that, that's a, I go, what, tell me. I really want to know, tell me. Because that's, Oh, is that Jesus' body and blood? 
Yes. Yes. When we do the words of institution, it's for that moment that we believe that Jesus becomes present and feeds his sheep and he's not tied to the elements themselves, though he's ordained these means to be the means by which he moves and shows up within the context of the worship service, within the context of an ordained person doing the, the words of institution. And then it's over. It's over. Nothing spooky. Nothing special about the bread and about the wine. Yeah, pretty much like when the service, yeah. 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 Excellent. Let me get, let me get this thing done, and then we'll, when we move into the Lord's Supper, let's get into the nitty-gritty of that. So we got God is acting, but he's acting on demand, and he's acting on demand because he's bound to the elements. Because the blood does, I mean, the wine does become the blood. The bread does become the body. You see how this works? And that's why, I mean, I'm not necessarily, um, those that uh, hold the sacramental view, and there are many, not just those that are in the Roman Catholic camp, uh, they, they try to, uh, and, and I, I'm, I'm willing to allow that, although it's hard not to think that Jesus is propitiating and accomplishing every time you take the Lord's Supper, the work of the cross every time, right? It, it functionally, experientially, though theologically they may not confess that and profess that, but functionally, experientially, it ends up becoming that, if that makes sense. The Reformed view says God is acting How's he acting? On demand? By grace. It's a means of grace. It's a means by which, does everybody who reads, who disagrees that the, the scripture is not a means of grace? Nobody disagrees. Okay, good. Nobody in all of evangelicalism disagrees with that. Does everybody who reads the scripture become a Christian? Right? It's a means of grace. Grace. Right? It's not bound on demand. The sacraments are not bound and on demand. But this is what's so helpful. The sacraments, this is where I think is so great. Augustine says the sacraments are the visible word. So you got to think of the gospel and the scriptures, and then you got to think of the gospel in the visible word of the sacraments. It's the same thing. It's the gospel, remember, because Christ commanded it, and the gospel is the only reference point. It's a visible gospel. You taste it. You smell it. You eat it. You, you take it into yourself, right? Just like the word is caught, eat the word, right? Be nourished on the word. See how... It's a visible word I think is really, really helpful. If you think of the sacraments as a visible gospel word, it's helpful, I think. All right, but God is acting by grace. It's a means of grace. Do you see the difference? I think this is the question. Anything else really, I don't really care about all the other discussions about this. Once we establish this, 
Now we're in a realm that really makes conversations interesting. It moves us, I think, in the right way to talk about, all right, let's talk about the memorial view. Let's talk about an infant dedication, right? Most, okay, we want to dedicate our infants. We don't believe that we should baptize them. We want to dedicate them. And that makes all the sense in the world because God's not acting. It's just a dedication. Great. Okay, good. You dedicated your child to God. Fantastic. Right? Do you see how this? Okay. All right. Let's see. What else did I want to say about this? Um, remembering whatever benefit it brings you subjectively yes excellent Excellent, excellent. So that's why baptism. Yeah. Excellent. No, no, no. That's really, really good. That's really good. So faith is huge, right? Because faith is the response to grace, right? Um, so when we get into baptism, you can see the different views of ba- if the baptism is uh, a declaration, if it's, if it's about what I've done, it's just declaring what I've done, you can see how the theologies will come out of that. The practices will come out of that. The view of children will come out of that, correct? If sacrament of baptism actually like, once you do it, you're saved, baptismal regeneration, right? Or it does something enough to take away your original sin and now you've got to... Right now you're 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 elevated to the place that Adam was at, and now it's up to you to whether how well do you do in this world, and then you need grace to take away the times you don't do well, or at least get you back up to a original innocence and righteousness. Do you see how this happened? It so it's very helpful to know once you've established this, you kind of can see the trajectory of all of these. When we start talking about baptism and we start talking about the Lord's Supper depending on how these views hold, this will tell you baptism in a memorial view, Lord's Supper in a memorial view, Baptist here, uh, Lord's Supper here will give you an idea of where they're going. Yes, Ted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move into the specifics. Let's get in there because there are two questions that y'all are asking that are in the specifics. Uh, the camps, the first question was yours about like loosely camps. Okay, memorial tends to be like uh, Baptist, um, Bible church, non-denom, charismatics, EV3, uh, just general evangelicals, honestly. General evangelicals mostly are... Memorial view. Sacramental, um, 
obviously Roman Catholic, but there's a there's a, a Episcopalian dynamics. There's Anglican dynamics sometimes in here. Um, yeah, that, that yes, constant. Okay, so Luther. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about it when we get the Lord's Supper. Um, Reformed, uh, generally speaking, um, can be everyone we just mentioned. But it generally, if you're going by theological stripes and confessions, anyone that adheres to the Westminster Confession of Faith is in the Reformed camp. Um, anyone that uh, generally Presbyterian, Reformed, um, Reformed Baptists, they're, they're, yeah, it's just so confusing. It's yeah, it's it is confusing because the the London Confession is the Westminster Confession with some sacrament uh, adjustments. So I don't know, but those are generally yeah. Okay. Uh, how does all right? We already did that. We already did that. All right, really quick. The second question. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we're going to get into baptism, Lord's Supper, because we've got to tackle that question. Here's the last. I want to ask this just so we understand things before we get into specifics. What happens when the sacraments are undervalued or underpracticed? We always talk about the sacraments being overvalued, right? Everyone's always a worried. I, I heard this all growing up. I heard this all when I was at DTS. I heard this all the time when I was in the, the Bible church movement, when I was in the parachurch movement. Everyone kept talking about the danger of ritualistic approach to Christianity, the danger of taking the Lord's Supper every Sunday. We'll turn it into a ritual and make it less important. The danger of, of dry ritual um, so this overvaluing God's sacraments, right? If you overvalue it, you do it a lot, uh, there's the danger of it becoming rote, mechanical. Um, what else did I say about it? Uh, lifeless ritual, an empty religious practice, right? So we only take it once a month or once a quarter or once a year because it's so special, right? That's usually how... Those of us that have grown up in more of a memorial view or grown up in that world, that's how we've looked at the sacraments. I just want to ask and hear from y'all, what happens though when you undervalue it? What happens when you undervalue the sacraments that Jesus gave to the church? Bingo. Well, there you go. Maybe, maybe most churches, maybe churches are starving because they don't practice the sacraments. It's huge. Absolutely huge. If everything's memorial and it's all about you, there's nothing objective. You're, you're, you're stuck in the loop of the conversation with yourself in your own spirituality and victorious Christian living and whatever it is that you think is going to keep you going in this Christian life, you maintaining everything gets real hard. Amanda. Yeah. 
It didn't take. Yeah. Really good. Everybody hear that? That re rededications and redoing it over and over and over again, hoping that it takes. Um, you know what ends up happening to y'all? Here's what ends up happening. You will create like rabbits sacraments in your life. When you don't have Jesus's two sacraments or Jesus's means of grace, the preached word and all the, the means of grace that we have, if you don't have them, you will become a sacramental rabbit. You will start reproducing sacraments everywhere in your life. Everything becomes a sacrament. And just like the Incredibles, when everybody's, when everybody's super, nobody's super. Go ahead. Yes, 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 without a doubt, no, that's so good, yeah, yeah, here we go, all right, so just some thoughts, so I'm again, so when you have conversations with people, it's just, it's just fun to ask the question from a different perspective to actually, oh, I never thought of that, because we're in that world, right? Yeah, I mean, it's like it's like anything else. We say this over and over here. You hear it over and over again. One of the things that we say to the leaders of the church, listen, our goal is to get less and less in the way of what God is doing in the church and in the world and to be more and more a part of what he's doing in the world. When you align yourself with Jesus' sacraments, you're more a part of what he's doing in the world. You're more a part of what he's doing in the life of this church you're more a part of what he's doing if you don't practice regularly the sacraments you're actually getting in the way without a doubt without a doubt okay so let's move into baptism and lord's supper so we can tackle in seven minutes which is just fantastic um does baptism primarily point to our faith what we do we now know it's a means of grace so that radically changes a lot of things right so what is baptism? Grace to begin the journey. It's where Jesus shows up with his comprehensive salvation. If you want to get theological, our tradition says things like it's a sign and seal of who Jesus is and what he's done. A sign meaning it signifies. A seal means it's real. And sometimes in the Bible, right, the sign and the seal, they're so close. They blend so together that sometimes, right, that's why you have different denominations that do it. 
is he saying baptism saves you? Right? Because the sign and the seal, because what does baptism signify? It signifies a comprehensive salvation. So some people treat it as if it's just one aspect of Jesus' work or one aspect of his union. So, oh yeah, it's the, the regenerating part of his work. But it's his whole work. So baptism literally is, when you're identified with Jesus, you are in union with Jesus, and that means you get everything. Baptism is a sign of that. It's not just a sign of you going under the water and coming out to new life. No, it's a sign of you identify with him in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So his justification is yours. His adoption is yours. Everything that he accomplished for you is yours in baptism, right? So that's important. All right, and so who receives this baptism? Ah, here we go. Who receives baptism? So there, go ahead. John MacArthur, beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Without a doubt. Yeah, so we would say our tradition, this one here, would say that baptism is for believers and their children. Now remember, it's going to be rooted in this dynamic. You can still kind of see it. God's the primary actor. If baptism is, is uh, a memorial view and it's just signifying a memorial of what you've done, then you can easily see why it's only those that actually do something that get baptized, right? If baptism has to do with what my profession or my dedication or what I'm doing to say that I'm a Christian or what I'm doing to say that I'm, I'm gotten serious as a Christian again and again and again, right? When that happens, you can see how, well, only People that are of a certain age that can understand that and respond like that, of course, they're the ones that aren't going to battle. Only those that, that can have a self-conscious sense of faith or whatever that means in the, the world of, of responding to Jesus, right? But do you see that it takes, it's just as mystical though still, right? Because how many people have professed to be Christians and yet weren't you know what I'm saying it's still kind of a it's a weird deal right so you still have to because what I hear is people are saying well you don't know if those if those are going to be Christians your kids are going to be Christians or not right I hear that all the time I'm like well yeah but how do I know that person is the church is visible and invisible but is that my job or is my job just to do what Jesus says is my job to um, give grace to be a part of whatever those means are and trust God to work in people's lives, right? All right, so baptism, we would say in our tradition, is for believers and their children. Uh, there are many reasons for that. Let me finish this and Lord's Supper, and then we can talk about those reasons time, time uh, allowing. Lord's Supper, does the Lord's Supper primarily point to our worthiness to take it? Or is it about something that God's doing again, right? Many people, even in our Southern Presbyterian roots and some Scottish Presbyterians talk about the Lord. They fence it like, oh my word, who can take it? They start listing the qualifications of being able to, of, of what, 
And it's like, okay, I guess no sinner can take this thing. Your only qualification for taking the Lord's Supper is realizing you're not. That's the qualification. You're, you're, you trust in Jesus and you realize you're unworthy. Yes, Heather. Let's put it this way. If, if we are living in a high-handed rebellion, um, treasuring of some particular sin that we are just in it, the moment we walk in, the moment we're here and we're leaving, uh, you know, I know, you know that ah, I, I should not be taking the Lord's Supper. Because I'm, I have no intention, no desire uh, of letting go or having God work in this area of my life. Um, if repentance is honesty about being a sinner, then, and you need help in an area, you better be taking the Lord's Supper. Do you see, this is, that's why this is such a pastoral thing and it's such a, it's so, so important because some people talk as if you can sit there and categorize your life into these blocks of sins as acts as opposed to something you're in. We start talking about it like it's something we do only. You and I have a sinful nature as a Christian right now. And that thing is only an adulterer, only a liar, only a thief, only breaks the Ten Commandments. Right now, inside of you, you have a, a, a zombie. You have a nature that is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And you have a nature that trusts God, loves him. The spirit and the fruit of the spirit is there, and it's called spirit, flesh, and spirit. Those are the two natures that you are right now. Those of you that have very tender consciences, you feel the flesh. And when you feel the flesh, you won't come to the Lord's Supper because you feel it. No, you need to come to the Lord's Supper. Then there are some of us that don't feel the flesh, right, as much. And we think we're killing it and crushing it, right? Um, you actually think you're worthy to come up here. Right? So where do you do? Well, I do it this way. I say, listen, if, if I had to come and be your pastor and preach and observe the Lord's Supper and administer the Lord's Supper and be free from all known sin, oh, I, I, I couldn't get up and out of the bed in the morning. But that's one thing. But then it's coming in here and saying, listen, I'm... Uh, I'm in serial sin, sexual sin right now. And I have no desire to let go of a serial sexual sin. That's a different, now we're talking like, the reason why you don't come to the Lord's Supper is because of contumacy, which means you're not willing to admit that you're a sinner in that area. You're not willing to get, let God help you in that area. You're resisting him. That's a different, the person that's, 
unwilling and resistant, that person should not take the Lord's Supper. But the tender, the person that's struggling and is in the battle and the war, <laughs> yes, you need to take the Lord's Supper. But do you see how your view of the spiritual life will determine how you look at this and how you even approach this? Most folks who have a higher victorious Christian living have put sin into such a, a category that nobody can take the Lord's Supper. Or they've made it so behavioralistic, they ignore what goes on in their heart because it's safer, so they can take the Lord's Supper because they're now worthy of it. Okay, we got two minutes. Um, here's what's different about the Lord's Supper. We're going to answer your questions. Let's get your questions answered. Uh, the Lord's Supper is grace for the journey, right? So this is a, a believer, grace for the journey. So that is a little different even on the, the face of it. The baptism is something that's done to you. Do you see even the form of it? It's done to you, right? So uh, it's God acting on you completely, right? He's acting on you in the Lord's Supper, but you can see it's a little more participatory. I'm going up and I'm eating and I'm, right? More is involved. That's not necessarily only done to me. So there's a, 1 Corinthians has this passage where it, this is when people draw the line, right? It's on this passage right here. It says, uh, let the person examine himself then, so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Okay. So everybody goes into that dynamic. Why? Some folks in our tradition, they're in the, if this is our tradition, they're like this, we call them the Uncle Freds, right? They have, they believe in pedo communion, that they actually give the Lord's Supper to infants. Our denomination has said no. Uh, and so you can be a pastor in our denomination and believe it, but you can't practice it. Uh, where I come down is, uh, it seems that this sacrament is meant for um, self-conscious, uh, believing, maturing, relational dynamics. It doesn't mean your kid and your infant is not a Christian. It just means that this is the dynamic for grace for the journey. Um, and it seems to be more of a uh, understanding uh, dynamic and a faith dynamic that's more... Um, visible in the Lord's Supper. In baptism, it's not. It's actually done to you. And certainly, it's done to believers, but it seems in the scripture that, that children are included in the faith of their parents and included in the visible church. And it also explains, if you were to look at those really difficult passages that everybody goes to on lordship salvation stuff, when you get in those arguments, if you have those arguments, even those arguments even happen anymore. But people go, you know, once saved, always saved. Are those arguments still going on? Does that happen? I don't have those anymore, which I'm so thankful for. So glad we move off certain topics and doctrines. Um, but there was a time, and so everybody goes to Hebrews, right? They partook and they fell away. How else do you explain those passages other than you have covenant children, children that have grown up in the church, and they're a part of the visible church? Remember, 
the sign and the seal is so wedded that sometimes they're talked about in the same way. So if you partake of the divine gift, well, what would those divine gifts be? The sacraments, the preached word, the visible church. Our tradition calls the institutionalized church an institutionalized means of grace. In other words, the church itself is a means of grace. Isn't that interesting? The church is an institutionalized means of grace. That's how our tradition talks. It even says providence is a means of grace because for, for a Christian, he causes all things to work together for your good. That's how our tradition talks. Isn't that crazy? So we could have added that. You could add the institutional church as a means of grace beyond those three, the preached word and the two sacraments in that big camp. The institutional and providence are also means of grace for the Christian, right? So I don't know where I was going with that, but I knew it was really, really good. All right, so what's the other question? Steve, did that help for children? That's good. Yeah, because that's where, you know, you got those passages, say we go in Corinthians, and you look at Corinthians, and it says this. There seems to be some sort of whoever eats the bread, drinks the cup in an unworthy manner, right, uh, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord, whatever that means. Let the person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So there seems to be a dynamic that goes like this. In, in, in our tradition and in covenant theology, it goes like this. The sacraments, in one sense, always are a means of grace or a means of cursing. Meaning... Um, just like, uh, just like salvation has a judgment aspect and a saving aspect to it, right? Jesus is judged, so you get saved. Uh, just like in the parting of the sea, uh, the Israelites were saved, but the Egyptians were judged. Those that don't, those that, I should go this way because I think this is more helpful. Those of us that refuse to stop being our own Lord and Savior, our own God, we will be our own Lord and Savior and God in the end. In other words, I either trust the Savior to take care of my sin or I'm going to take care of my own sin. You see how this, I'm either going to be my own Savior, which means, okay, I'm going to rely on my own righteousness and I'm going to pay the penalty for my own sin. Or someone, another Savior, the real Savior does that. Does that make sense? So the sacraments are showing a curse because Jesus had to be cursed for you to take to be blessed. So if, if I now come to that and I say, well, I'm going to be my own Savior, then the curse is on me. The judgment is on me. Yes. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know all the, this is where it's almost like the Bible is incredibly mystical, right? It's incredibly like, 
There's a warning. Uh, there's the dynamic of eating, drinking, judgment on your. It's saying you're if you don't trust Jesus, you're being your own savior. And when you go up there to take what's supposed to push you to Jesus, but you're not really trusting in Jesus, but trusting in yourself, there's that element of, dude, at the most, one of the most important places for you to actually get Jesus, you're, you're, you're being your own Jesus. There's that kind of warning. It's like it, you're partaking of, you're reading the scripture and you don't see the Jesus in the scripture, right? It's that kind of warning within the context of the church. I don't know how else to tackle that thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so there's this, so, so it's what happens then in the Lord's Supper and in church is that there, there could be self-conscious, just like a self-conscious professing faith in Christ, there could be someone who's self-consciously not professing faith in Christ. That could be who they're addressing. Um, in that case, it's real self-evident. That's, Right? What you're saying, it's real self-evident. Well, of course, this is for the church. This is for God's people, right? Van? Yeah, I mean, there's that water, right? So the water, judgment falls on the water, the flood, judgment falls on Jesus. So you can be saved. There's always this, it's always like every time someone's baptized, it's like, see, Jesus is judged for you or you're paying, it, it declares the gospel, right? It declares the gospel to the church. Jesus is your savior or you're your savior. And if you're your savior, you're going to get dunked in a curse way. If you're your savior, your blood's going to be spilt. Your body's going to be broken, right? It's always professing judgment and salvation. But we're saying for the Christian, it's judgment on Jesus, salvation for me. But for the non-Christian, it's judgment on you because you're trying to be your own savior, Right? So there's that dynamic, and then there's the pastoral element, and that's where we're just going to have to be like, the pastoral element is trying to deal with the different spiritual conditions out there and apply it. And it seems that this one is just being really, really clear, and here's where we're going to end, that if you don't know, if all of a sudden you're made aware that you, you're not a believer, right, you become, thank God, right, and you realize, I, I need to not know. Um, I need to trust Jesus. That's the dynamic. The gospel is in the visible word and in the preached word. It's happening to people, and he's just trying to apply it to all the spiritual conditions out there. So be aware, people. Be aware. You're either your Savior or Jesus is your Savior. Don't come up here. You're being your own Savior. That's the only way I can think of it right now.
Peace out, people.